Proverbs 22, verse 28. And there, the wisest ordinary man that has ever lived, Solomon, declares this. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Boundaries are given to us by God so that we stay where we ought to stay and so that we do not stray from those areas that God has appointed for us into forbidden territory. Now, we can see the benefit of having property boundaries and landmarks so that we know where our property begins and where our neighbor's property begins, where our property ends, where theirs begins. In fact, you could be subject to civil sanction if you disregarded those property landmarks and built your home so that it crossed over and overlapped onto your neighbor's property. It's indeed paradoxical how individuals and families and nations recognize this principle when it comes to boundaries of property and real estate, national boundaries, they'll fight over tooth and nail. And yet how often when the subject shifts to moral issues, Doctrinal issues and boundaries having to do with God's commandments, they do not want to hear about God's boundaries. To the contrary, they want to talk about freedom, by which they mean to be free from God's moral boundaries that are found in his holy law and commandments. This is one of the purposes of God's commandments. To set moral boundaries for all men, women, and children in thought, word, and deed. <coughs> I would submit that the temptation to move the doctrinal boundaries established in Scripture and applied by our covenanting forefathers is even much greater that temptation is even much greater when we are not hedged in by the lawful spiritual authority of elders. <coughs> when are children at home more likely to cross over boundaries that their parents have established within the home? Well, when the parents are not in the room. Or when they're gone, it's much more likely that the children will cross over or move those boundaries. And so likewise, we all, all of us, are more likely to move the moral and doctrinal landmarks of our God and of our covenanting forefathers if and when the session of this church should be dissolved. And I say that simply for our admonition for that reason, dear ones, we need to realize the grave and serious sin involved in moving the moral boundaries that we have 
up to this point professed with our lips by being members of this church and practiced as a covenanted church. We need to renew our commitment and our covenant with the Lord that we will be faithful to those covenanted boundaries whether there is a functioning church court or whether there is no functioning church court. But there is still one Lord to whom we have covenanted by way of our church membership and by way of our solemn league and covenant to uphold and defend the moral truths taught in Holy Scripture and embraced and practiced by our covenanting forefathers. <coughs> this Lord's Day, let us consider together the landmarks or boundaries which God has set in our lives and the sin that's involved in crossing over those boundaries or just moving them just a little bit at first and moving them more. There is, actually, there are two questions, two questions raised within our text that we need to consider today. And the first question is, what is the sin of moving the ancient landmark? And second, what is the landmark of our forefathers? So the first question, what is the sin of moving the ancient landmark? <coughs> we read in the first part of Proverbs 22:28, remove not the ancient landmark. Solomon literally commands us here, stop moving the ancient boundary. For the Hebrew form of this prohibition actually assumes that the sin of moving the ancient landmark is presently going on. And it must be stopped now. It must not continue. It cannot continue. Rather than giving the form of a universal prohibition, which would be phrased in this manner, thou shalt not move the ancient landmark of thy fathers. It's the way in which the verb is used here. It conveys stop moving it. Solomon, in effect, is a witness, apparently, to the gross sin that was going on within the nation and within the church of his time in this very area and commands all men, but especially those in the church, to whom he writes, stop it, stop it immediately. And if it was appropriate in Solomon's time, it's certainly appropriate in our time as well. If Solomon was speaking to the church at that time, and because the church in the Old Covenant, the church and the New Covenant are essentially one church. He's speaking to us as well. He's commanding us, stop moving the boundaries, the ancient boundary. <coughs> what were these landmarks that were being moved? Well, the ordinary sense in which we would understand a landmark would be in those days, a Solomon understood to be that of a common marker of some kind, perhaps stones or a stick or something that would indicate 
where one's property is divided from another person's property. When we read in Proverbs 22:28, remove not the ancient landmark, we ought not to conclude that what is forbidden in this verse is taking the landmark out of the field altogether and carrying it off somewhere else or hiding it or destroying it. That's not what Solomon is intending to communicate here. Solomon is not saying, stop picking up those good old landmarks and carrying them off to where they'll never be found again. <clears throat> that certainly is condemned, but that is not specifically what is being said here. What is actually being said is, <clears throat> stop shoving or pushing the good old landmark even just a little bit so that no one knows where it originally stood in the first place. Don't even move it a little bit. For to shove the ancient landmark even a foot or two is to rob one's neighbor of his property that's been given to him by God. Listen carefully, dear ones. It is not the degree to which the landmark is moved that God condemns here in Proverbs 22:28, but rather that the landmark has been moved at all. Just as the ninth commandment does not merely forbid telling big lies or telling many lies, but rather condemns telling all lies, so the Eighth Commandment does not merely forbid stealing a lot or many times from your neighbor. It forbids stealing from your neighbor at all. Thou shalt not steal. Period. Obviously, it may be more aggravated of a sin to move the landmark a mile rather than a foot but you have still moved the landmark of your neighbor just the same and have robbed your neighbor of his property even if you have pushed or shoved the landmark just a foot rather than a mile. Just as you have robbed your neighbor if you have taken one dollar from your neighbor instead of a hundred dollars or have robbed your employer of one hour Instead of a hundred hours, it's still robbing and stealing. To move these appointed markers, dear ones, as it related to particularly real estate and property, to move these, these landmarks in the field was condemned very explicitly by God and was cursed as a sin by God, as we see in two passages from the scriptures. In Deuteronomy 19.14, the Lord condemns this when he says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. They're very clearly condemned by God to move the landmark of your neighbor. And then Deuteronomy 27, verse 17, it's, a curse is even attached. 
for doing so. So this is something to be taken very, very seriously, God says. <clears throat> Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Dear ones, when we rob others of property, money, or time, let us not forget that God is the first and proper owner of all property, of all honor, of all possessions, of all money, and of all time. And so to steal from our neighbor is also to steal from God. Because God says in Psalm 24, 1, <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Furthermore, he says in Psalm 50, verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Thus, to rob our neighbor, as I said, is to rob God of what is his and what he has given to our neighbor. And dear ones, God will not long stay his mighty hand against those who rob him and continue in their sin, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.22, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do we really think, this is not what Paul says, I'm now adding my own question, do we really think that we can get away with robbing God and stealing from God? It becomes so easy, beloved, to rationalize, to justify our robbing God, since we can't see him. We don't think in terms of him being right there with us, seeing, observing all that we do and robbing him. It's, it's easy for us to do as mere human beings, sinful, wicked Godless human beings. It is easy for us to do. It's easy for us to rob others. Especially when we do so in just little tiny increments. A little bit at a time here or there. I'm just borrowing it for now. But I will return it later. But later never seems to come around. It's very conveniently forgotten in, in that book or that tool, or whatever it is, just continues to sit where it has sat for months and years, and there it is. Or we might say, well, that store, it has so much in there. Look, look at all that's in that store. It's surely not going to miss the little that I've taken from it, not paid for. Or... We might look at ourselves as being more needy than others and say, you know, I have a lot more needs than that person has, than my boss has, or, or the store has, or my neighbor has. I've got many more needs than that person has. So surely my need justifies my taking that particular item in this case, because I need it. That person doesn't need it. I do. Or we might justify it by saying, I'm not taking this for myself. Really, I'm just thinking of my children. 
I'm just thinking of someone who's more needy. And so, again, we have the attitude that we steal from and rob the rich to give to the poor. Thus, the end justifies the means. That is, if we steal and move the boundaries for the right reasons, it's justified. It's okay. Dear ones, again, I say, it is not how far the boundary has been moved that makes us thieves, but that we have moved it at all. If it is easy to push the ancient landmark afoot today, it will be easier to push it two feet tomorrow and five feet next week and ten feet next month or next year. And then to just pick up the landmark and carry it off where nobody knows where it is or cover it up altogether. Let us consider some other ways, dear ones, in which we may move the ancient boundaries. It's interesting that the Hebrew word translated remove in Proverbs 22.28 is also used as a noun in Proverbs 14.14. Proverbs 14.14, where there, the same word, but as a noun rather than as a verb, is translated backslider. There we read, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. The backslider in heart. So what is a backslider? A backslider is one who moves boundaries. That's a backslider according to the scripture. One who moves boundaries by comparing those two verses. One who backslides from a position of truth or from a position of righteousness which he or she has formally professed or embraced. I ask you, dear ones, have you moved the good old boundaries in your life by falling into some sin which you continue to practice? Perhaps no one else even knows you practice it. Perhaps it's practiced secretly. You may have everyone around you Fooled, but you know you can't fool God. And you have moved that boundary, perhaps of holiness, in your life. You presently are trying to justify your sin, that you've only moved that boundary just a little. No one else knows about it. It's not a public scandal. It may be a boundary dealing with lust or pornography. It may be a boundary dealing with lying or cheating. It may be a boundary dealing with stealing, shoplifting. It may be a boundary that's dealing with prayerlessness in your life and avoiding and missing those times of prayer. It may be a boundary dealing with lukewarmness and apathy and indifference to the things of God due to the pleasures of this life that have overwhelmed you. And coveting the things of this life. 
or perhaps due to the music to which you listen, which have taken you away from those boundaries of holiness, or movies or sitcoms that you watch that have taken you from those boundaries of holiness. It may be a stubbornness or hardness of heart in the pricking of your conscience by the Holy Spirit of God because you don't like to be convicted. And so rather than yield, you build up a wall. You become calloused and insensitive so that like a callous on your hand, it doesn't hurt when God pricks your conscience any longer. Dear ones, we're all sinners by nature. And none of us likes boundaries by nature. We all kick against them by nature. We're rebellious. And due to the corruption of our own hearts, we by nature resent them, those boundaries, we hate them. Because these moral boundaries remind us that we are not God, we cannot set our own boundaries, that we owe our duty, our honor, and our obligation, our love to one supremely, that is, to the Lord God Almighty. In our simple heart, we say, boundaries spoil our fun and our excitement. Boundaries do not allow us to express our feelings, to express ourselves as we would like. Boundaries limit our freedom. I hate boundaries. <coughs> However, when the sinner comes to God, sincerely confessing his sin of hating God's holy boundaries, that is, his holy commandments, is pure doctrine and worship and church government. And he comes trusting alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, alone for his righteousness. Trusting alone in Jesus Christ for his forgiveness. God, through his unbounded grace, removes the hatred that we have for God's holy boundaries and replaces it with a love for God's holy boundaries. Do we still struggle with God's holy boundaries even though we have been given a new spirit, a new heart? Yes, because again, we are still struggling with the flesh, with the corruption of this nature. We still struggle with that. But now we have a love that we did not have before. If you have no love for God's holy boundaries, then you have every right to question whether or not, whether or not you have been given a new heart by the Lord God. Because every Christian, every Christian loves God's holy boundaries. God's commandments. He may find it difficult or she may find it difficult to obey them. There may be those times in which one will kick against those boundaries and cry out how difficult it is to follow. But there is yet within every Christian the desire and a love for God's holy law and commandments.
And although the Christian will trespass across the moral boundaries God has established in his commandment, he no longer blames the holy boundaries which God has established, but he blames himself as being the culprit for not loving those holy boundaries as he should or as she should. For he is brought to shame as he realizes he has sinned against not only the holiness of God in trespassing his commandments, his holy boundaries, but he has also sinned against the wisdom of God and against the love of God because those holy boundaries are given for our good. God doesn't give us the holy, his holy boundaries because, as his children because he hates us. When Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he didn't give those holy boundaries to Adam and Eve because he hated them. They hadn't even sinned yet. But because he desired to be in covenant with them, and because he promised them life, everlasting life, to be sustained in righteousness forever and ever, the promise was made to them to obey his moral commandment, those, that holy boundary he established. And he does for us as well. Dear ones, have you moved the boundaries? Perhaps, perhaps you would say, I have not consciously or I have not intentionally sought to move the boundaries of righteousness. But I ask, have you moved the boundaries of truth in your life in some way? If you have, well, you have, in fact, removed the boundary of righteousness as well because truth and righteousness go hand in hand. Have you become a backslidden boundary mover in compromising the truth in uncomfortable situations? Perhaps you don't want to stand out as a Christian to be mocked or to be disliked. And so it is just easier to blend in with the family, with the friends, with co-workers when the truth of Jesus Christ is under attack. For example, we're at a time of the year right now when, as was prayed in the prayer, many, if not even most churches today will be having a particular sermon that deals with the Christ Mass. And through this, they are being unwittingly, perhaps, drawn closer and closer to Rome. Because, as we all know, Jesus is not authorized. Jesus is not commanded, commanded us to celebrate, by way of a holy day, every year, his birth. We celebrate... All of these things pertaining to Christ every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day we remember the fact that God has given to us a Redeemer. God became flesh and dwelt among us. We remember every Lord's Day that he has gone to the cross to redeem us from the curse of the law. We remember every Lord's Day that he is not a dead Savior, but he is a raised and living Savior who has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. But he has not appointed a day to remember his birth 
as is celebrated in so many churches today. But this is, again, whether it's that or any other doctrine that is faithful and true, we will find ourselves either compromising or standing for those truths. We'll find ourselves and not speaking up and saying, we don't have to be mean, we don't have to be belligerent uh, with people when we do share the truth, but we do need for people to know, no, we and our children, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to move the boundary. We're going to stand where we have stood, faithful to the Lord until he calls us home. Now, I'm, again, not talking about being foolish in the way we do this, but I'm talking about simply in love speaking the truth. Are we so concerned about our own shame before others when the sinless Son of God willingly suffered the shame, our shame, that we deserved as a cursed criminal for sinners? sinners who deserved everlasting condemnation from the Son of God in everlasting hell. Dear ones, think of this also. Many of those who have been excommunicated from the church have moved the boundaries, have therefore, according to Proverbs 14.14, 14, backslidden from the truths which they previously professed and embraced. It is indeed grievous and sad to hear that the ancient landmark of our fathers is being moved by some who no longer profess the descending obligation of the solemn league and covenant that was bestowed upon us as their posterity. Those of us who dwell in the United States, Canada, and any other dominion or former dominion of Great Britain. God willing, in weeks to come as we approach Galatians chapter 3, it is my intention and desire to spend much more time on this subject, which I will not have time to do today to answer many of the objections that are circulating with regard to the descending obligation of the Solemn League and Covenant to us, to respond to those objections and those criticisms. But for the time being, this Lord's Day, let me say, just as all of the succeeding posterity of Israel as a moral person were bound by the covenant at Sinai, so are we the same moral person with our fathers who swore the Solemn League and Covenant in England, Ireland, and Scotland. It was not only those who were present in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 15, there in the covenant made at Mount Sinai that were bound by that solemn covenant with God, but it says that even those who are not present now were bound. And so likewise, our forefathers included their posterity in that covenant 
and in other writings, they make it very clear. As church courts, as parliaments, they make it very clear that all of his majesty's dominions, not some, all of them are bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. It was not limited to simply the territory of those three kingdoms in the Isles of Britain. Just as the covenant made at Sinai continued to bind all Israelites even after the ten tribes of Israel declared their independence from the two tribes of Judah, so are we yet bound even though we in the United States have declared our independence from Great Britain. Just as the moral person and posterity of the Israelites were bound to keep the covenant made at Sinai with God, even when they were not in the land, even when they did not have their own functioning king or priesthood or ministry, so are we who are the familial, ecclesiastical, and national posterity of those who covenanted with God in the Solemn League and Covenant. And dear ones, church courts, Reformed Presbyterian church courts, no matter what you may have heard recently, to the contrary, faithful church courts did declare us to be their national posterity and did declare that those covenants are our covenants, not simply the covenants of those who live in those British Isles, but those who live in the United States of America. They are our covenants as well. And that can be easily de demonstrated through their own writings, which we will do, God willing, when we come to Galatians 3. Covenants between men are binding. Marital covenants are binding. We can't simply just loose them for whatever reasons that we want to loose them. And it's a sin to break such covenants. How much more to backslide or to deny a covenant made with the everlasting and omnipresent Lord of the whole world? A covenant made by our faithful covenanting forefathers who included us. Note carefully, dear ones, the seriousness of the sin of covenant breaking. Especially, I would again add, covenant breaking with the Lord God by noting that not only that it's condemned covenant breaking is not only condemned but notice the sins with which it's associated and therefore the, the sins which are likewise con condemned along with covenant breaking in Romans 131 <clears throat> here are in the preceding verses, in the following verses of verse 31, you, one will find a whole uh, grocery list, as it were, of sins that are condemned here by, by the unrighteous. But also notice those sins, or that particular sin that's stated here when it says, without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, 
implacable, unmerciful. These are, again, serious. This is a serious sin. The Lord is demonstrating by not only the fact that he condemns it, but by association with the kinds of sins that are also condemned therein. Likewise, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, we find the following, and again, it's a similar kind of situation, speaking of, of uh, sins that will be prevalent in the last times. In the last times. And we find again... In verse 3, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, and on and on. Furthermore, some have not only moved the, the covenant or the boundary of of. Uh, laid by our faithful forefathers in the Solemn League and Covenant, but have moved the boundaries of truth in denying that Presbyterianism is alone of divine right, and now do not look upon denominationalism as an evil schism within the Church of Christ. To the contrary, it is proposed that we can tolerate or accommodate such sinful divisions within Christ's Church. This is completely contrary, completely contrary to the express teaching of Christ, wherein in Matthew chapter 28, ministers are expressly taught to teach only that which he has commanded us. Only that which he has commanded us. Not that which deviates at any point from what the Lord has taught us. And is contrary to our obligations and our duties that are found in the Solemn League and Covenant, which states that all such sinful divisions are to be uprooted rather than tolerated. To the contrary, the apostles did not form distinct but yet approved denominations when doctrinal differences and practices occurred but rather they instructed us to withdraw from those promoting such sinful and schismatic divisions within the church. In Romans, for example, in one place, Romans 16, verse 17, where we read, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. To mark someone was to censure them, was to put a mark upon them that you were not to have fellowship and communion with them. You were to withdraw from them, to avoid them. Now, is Paul only saying, if it's one person, do that with one person, but if it's many persons, don't do it with many? Well, how does that line up with any kind of reasonable, logical argumentation. If it is true of one person, how much more it should be true of many who bind together, upholding and defending those same errors and heresies. That's 
even if they call themselves a church or a denomination. They are to be withdrawn from. If it's true of one, it's true of many. Even the sixth commandment would require us to care enough for our own, not only our own physical welfare, when it says thou shalt not kill, but to care enough for our own spiritual welfare and the spiritual welfare of our children and our grandchildren for generations to come. That we would not unite ourselves with or sit under the ministry of those who have departed from the landmarks and attainments of our spiritual forefathers. But it may be said that these various denominations use the scripture to defend their positions. They're not unbiblical. They're using the Bible to defend their positions. Well, dear ones, every sect and denomination, even those that are most heretical, will seek to use the Bible to justify their reason for their separate and distinct existence and practicing what they believe. That's always been the case. Even the devil himself looked to the scriptures to support his denial and moving the boundaries of truth when he tempted Christ to leap from the pinnacle of the temple. When he said, quoting in Matthew 4, 6, the devil said, for it is written. We can certainly deceive ourselves with emotions and words of so-called freedom and how good it is to be set free from those legalistic boundaries. The Apostle Paul has warned us that the time will come when members of the church will not endure sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3-4. In other words, we are to anticipate that there will be a falling away, that there will be backsliding from the truth, that it will become more and more difficult to cling to the truth because of those who are falling away from the truth. In 1 Timothy 4, verses 3-4, through 4, speaking of those who would forbid to marry. And again, this would pertain to the, the Church of Rome, forbidding to marry commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received and with thanksgiving. And so, again, we, we find that, that as the time moves closer and closer to the end of this 1260-year period, what are we to expect? Are we to expect that during that period of time that we will find more and more reformation from what we read in God's word or more and more falling away from the truth. Well, we learn from God's word that, that the latter is the case. That the reformation will occur subsequent to the slaying of the witnesses. That the, that the mighty reformation, again, God can promote reformation any time he wants for a period of time. That's true. 
But by and large, we see drifting and drifting away, not coming to acknowledge the truth to a greater degree until we come to that period of reformation in the millennial period. Let us therefore ever pray in all humility, dear ones, that God will grant his grace to live within the boundaries of truth which he has revealed in the scriptures and not backslide from them. That we would hearken to the good old paths that are spoken of in Jeremiah 6.16. For our intellectual pride will deceive and mislead us into pushing back the boundaries of truth. Of course, all in the interest of truth, it will be said. For no professing Christian is likely to say, I'm moving the boundaries because I want to deny the truth and want to embrace error. Watch, therefore, with all vigilance and diligence for the words of the enemy come to us as they did to uh, even Eve. Yea, hath God said. Has God really said that? Has God really taught that? Test the teachers. Test the impressions in your own soul by the infallible scriptures. Let not the desire for new light blind you to the true light of scripture. The Lord God is indeed jealous for his doctrine, his worship, and his government. Let us not provoke him to wrath because we play so loose with that which is essential to the very character of God, namely truth. Not contradicting truth because there is no such thing as contradicting truth, but one truth, just as there is only one God. When we move the landmarks of truth, it is not simply against our neighbor that we have sinned, let us remember, but against our God that we have sinned, who has established these moral truths for us to embrace, profess, and practice, whether there is a functioning and faithful church court or not. And the second question, which we'll deal with very briefly, what is the landmark of our fathers? <clears throat> Back in Proverbs 22:28, we read in the second part of that verse, <clears throat> well, the verse begins, Remove not the ancient landmark, notice now, which thy fathers have set. <clears throat> the removal of the ancient landmark, according to our text in Proverbs 22:28, is rendered a double transgression, if you will. First, it is a transgression against my neighbor who is alive right now. For I have moved the landmark to his or her own hurt. Those around you, those in your family, your children, your friends, your parents, you've hurt them when you move the landmark because you're setting a stumbling block before others. You see, I've robbed him or her by taking his or her property, his or her honor, his or her good name, the time I owe him or her, and the mercy I owe him or her. Or I have robbed him by taking from him or her the truth in doctrine and life by embracing and teaching him instead my error. Whenever we move those divinely appointed boundaries in our life, we necessarily rob others. 
who are presently living. But second, it is a transgression against my neighbor who is no longer living, but is dead. We can sin against those who are no longer living by way of violating that which was passed on to us in faithfulness and truth. If your parents, for example, children, have taught you the truth, but they die, they leave with you the truth, but then you go off, disregard what your parents taught you, and do whatever you want to do, are you sinning against them just because they're no longer living? Or are you on your own at that point? You don't have to follow that any longer. Well, you are sinning against them because you're disregarding what was taught to you and given to you in faithfulness and truth. Observe that Solomon says in Proverbs 22:28, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Did you know that you could sin against those who have preceded us in death? We sin against the dead by sinning against our fathers who taught clearly the truth as revealed in Scripture for us to follow. You see, dear ones, our fathers have, have in faith blazed a path through the theological quagmire and jungle and have lived and suffered such persecution for standing for the truth. And many were martyred and gave their lives for the truth of Jesus Christ, for these covenanted truths. Sounding forth as a testimony to not only those who were present and heard them, but as a testimony for all of those who would follow them. Donald Cargill and James Rennick died as faithful covenanted ministers for the divine right of Presbyterianism and for the descending obligation of our solemn league and covenant. And we sin corporately against our fathers. And we sin individually against our fathers when we renounce the biblical truths for which the church, the faithful church of Scotland stood. For the faithful church of Scotland stood for the national unity of Christ's church, not denominationalism, not sectarianism. Dear ones, we treat the blood that they shed for Christ and his crown rights. We treat it as common, as ordinary, or as even shameful. How could you possibly suffer for these truths? How stupid and foolish to suffer for those truths is in effect what we are saying when we completely disregard those very truths for which they suffered and died. And this we do when we backslide from the attainments and reformation which they ascended to and passed on to us in church and state. Now we're not papists in following our fathers implicitly by way of oral tradition, but as our fifth term of communion correctly states, we do believe in an approbation, that is an approval of the faithful contendings of those witnesses and martyrs of Jesus Christ, especially in Scotland, who reached such attainments that were not realized in other churches and nations and kingdoms. This is not an implicit faith in the authority of our fathers, but rather it is an implicit faith in the authority of the Holy Scriptures 
and to the doctrine, worship, and church government that conforms to that alone and infallible standard of truth and which was taught and practiced by our faithful forefathers. God calls us today to cling to that which was faithfully passed down to us by our fathers. We are not to let, dear ones, the testimony for the truth to be trampled under the feet of a world or even of the church that thrives on moving the ancient boundaries of truth. Rather, we have this given to us by way of parting words in the last book of the Bible as the Lord speaks to the churches and speaks to us, <coughs> speaks to the churches at that time and speaks to us as well as in Revelation 2.24 or actually Revelation 2.25 but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. In other words, that which ye have already attained to by way of truth, by way of righteousness, hold fast to. Don't let it go. Cling to it. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the tribulations, whatever your situation, isolated or with other believers, cling to it. Likewise, the Lord Jesus, these are the words of Christ himself. The Lord Jesus says in Revelation 3.3, 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Dear ones, we multiply our sins when we ignore or neglect the faithful contendings of our faithful forefathers rather than walking in their footsteps. Don't move those ancient landmarks which our fathers have set. Let us stand in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee, Almighty God, our faithful covenanting God. We thank Thee that in, Lord, the covenant of grace, Thou hast fulfilled all righteousness through Christ, and, Lord, we cling to Him. But Thou hast taught us, O Lord, in the covenant of grace, how we are to obey Thee as well, to please Thee to bring thee glory. And Lord, our, our faithful forefathers have set a path before us and what they have taught and what they have practiced. And Lord, we would, we would uh, be faithful. We know, oh Lord, it's not easy when, as it were, the whole world says we're crazy, says we're foolish. But, O oh Lord, even as it was said to Athanasius that the whole world is against you, Athanasius, and Athanasius replied, well, Athanasius is against the whole world, then let us as covenanters likewise say, if the whole world is against us, we are against the whole world. We will not be moved. We will hold fast that to which we have attained by thy grace and by thy mercy. We will speak the truth in love. 
always seeking, O Lord, to bring others who are desirous of knowing the truth unto a more accurate and faithful understanding. But, O Lord, help us not to compromise. Help us to stand fast. This is not within us to reach or to attain to the standing fast. It is a work of thy grace. And so, Lord, we call upon thee to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.